Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Zivi Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year, for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now, and you can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in San Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Stephanie Clifford is the author of The Farewell Tour, a novel. Stephanie is an investigative journalist and a best-selling novelist. As a New York Times reporter for almost a decade, she covered courts, business, and media. She now writes long-form investigations about criminal justice and business for The Times, The New Yorker, The Economist, The Atlantic, Wired, L. Esquire, Bloomberg Businessweek, and other publications. Her accolades include the Loeb Award in Investigative Reporting, the Society of American Business Editors and Writers in Explanatory Reporting, and a New York Press Club Award. Everybody Rise, her first book, was a New York Times bestseller and New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice. She grew up in Washington State, graduated magna cum laude from Harvard, and lives in Brooklyn with her family. Welcome, Stephanie. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss The Farewell Tour, a novel. I'm so glad to be here. 
Oh, thanks for coming. Can you please tell listeners what your book is about? Yeah, it opens in 1980 when Lillian Waters, a sort of washed up, hard talking country music star is on her final tour. And you see her, she's been diagnosed with career ending vocal problems. She knows this is her last shot to sing on the road, to go home to Washington State, where she's from and hasn't been back to since she was a kid. Then in alternating chapters, you see her growing up in Walla Walla, Washington. You see her in the country music scene in Tacoma, Washington, and California and in Golden Age Nashville. So it's for people, obviously, who love music, but there's also so much about dealing with trauma and visiting your past and kind of thinking about how to make art as a woman in a sometimes unforgiving world. So she had a really, I would say, not great relationship with her sister, Hen, who, along with her mom, would put her in this shed, the milk shed, is that what it's called? Milk shed, yeah. Milk shed. And she tried to get out and nobody heard her. I mean, this is literally like my worst nightmare. It's like you're trapped <laughs> inside the dark. And uh, this is why my son like never locks the door to the bathroom. You know, he's right. like, <laughs> you never know. But, you know, that way of, you know, pre-depression era parenting, I don't know. How, how do you recover from something like that? I'm not, I'm not sure you do. And, and really it was so, I mean, the story not not the specifics of it, but kind of that origin story where Lillian leaves home at age 10 and moves into town to become a hired girl was based on my own grandmother's story. Really? She, yeah, she grew up on a Depression-era Northwest farm, and we never knew why she left, but she did leave, and from age 10 on, she was supporting herself. And she, I adored her. She was incredible. But you could also see there was just so many walls that she had built up in order to survive. And I feel like there are so many tales like that, especially a woman from that era who just had to get by in these really tough circumstances. And I wanted to look at what that does to a person when they when they can't talk about their past like we would now, when they can't go to therapy because it just wasn't done and there wasn't medication and, and how, how that affects how they interact with the world and kind of how they carry themselves through the world. So you see Lillian really grappling with that, especially as she's as she's challenged and pushed on this last tour by some of her colleagues. She thinks about how she has been interacting with the world, whether it's it's been the right way or whether there is a way to be a little more vulnerable, a little more open. And even her sort of PTSD-ish, just driving up and coming back to the farm. Yeah. You know, you create this sort of tension with the reader right away where you're empathetic and yet curious all at the same time. So it's a good way to kick it off. Good. Thanks. (laughs) And then polyps on the vocal cords. Yeah. You said in your acknowledgments how you talked to lots of doctors about that and what did you learn about it? And is it something that only happens? I mean, that sounds like a stupid question. Does it only happen to singers? I'm sure it doesn't only happen to singers, but is it more common in singers? Is it caused by the excessive use or unrelated? Yeah, it's caused by excessive use and lack of vocal cord training. So you, you could get it if you're a regular person, but the I spoke to a doctor at NYU who have a special vocal center that specializes in opera singers and stage performers who are always kind of speaking to crowds and speaking a ton. And most of them now have really good training on how to preserve their vocal cords. Lillian, of course, wouldn't have had access to that in growing up. So she's just belting out on stage and she, she starts to get this raspy tone in her voice and she knows immediately what it was because she she's seen it happen to other singers. So and and back then the doctor I talked to was fabulous. He was taking me through like 1980s era vocal cords. <laughs> <laughs> back then now they have incredible 
uh, techniques for for restoring vocal cords. Back then, it was a little bit more risky. And Lillian's really afraid of actually losing her voice if she goes through the surgery. So she's she's when the book opens, she doesn't want to touch the surgery. She just wants to sing one more time and then kind of head head out of the spotlight. I was reading this morning about how uh, Nadal might be at the end of his tennis career. I don't know if you follow tennis, but it feels like the same thing. It's like he's in all this pain and before he like does one last thing to make him, you know, basically not even walk anymore. It's it's similar because it's so hard on your, I mean, it's obviously hard on a very different part of your body, but it's also like, how far can you push it? And when is the moment to leave so that your legacy is still sort of shining brightly, you know, and you're not just like, bobbling around, reaching, reaching to hit a ball, you know? Yeah. I feel like both of them, they said this morning how, uh, um, he can't even enjoy the success because of all the physical pain. And I feel like as Lillian is going around, you know, holding her throat and all of that, you know, at what cost do we achieve greatness? Right. Yeah. And she's, she's just trying to make it back to Washington, the, the tour ends up in Washington. And so she's dying to go back and perform in front of her family and like show them what she's become. And that's sort of her, her driving force at first, at least. And tell me more about all the research that you did. Yeah, I, I am also a journalist. And so I love, love, love research. So I started in the Walla Walla Library, which is, it's like a small sort of mostly farming town, wine town now in Washington. Uh, and the college there has this incredible archive, in part because it's a small town. Like, it's not like the New York Public Library where they're only collecting, like, really storied people's papers. <laughs> like, everybody from town just donates their papers to the library. So you had, like, they had a farmer's journal from 1910 where he's, like, writing day by day what he's planting, what he's what the problems on the farm are. And that really helped me with, like, what Lillian's parents would have been doing on the farm, what what time of year you plant wheat, when you harvest it, what goes wrong with the harvest. There were fabulous fire maps of Walla Walla so I could see exactly what the stores were and think about what would have appealed to Lily and, of course, the music store versus, like, the hat store. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So that was huge fun. And then the Tacoma part of the book, um, I actually had to sort of backfill. I had to write most of that during COVID. And so I didn't actually get to visit Tacoma until the book was almost done. And it was so nerve-wracking because I Lillian loves Tacoma. She her career starts there. It's like this kind of honky-tonk, working man's town. It totally fits her style. But I hadn't been to Tacoma in years. And I had like at this moment when I was I was like in the taxi from the airport going into Tacoma where I was about to throw up, where I was like, what if it's like super nice and quiet and Lillian would <laughs> but it turned out it was it was fabulous. She, it's still gritty and the port's still there. Like she would have totally loved it. It was also it was funny. I, I um have two kids. I have a husband. I, we have like a thousand animals. And I was in Tacoma for a few days by myself. And everybody was like, "Oh, like was it great to be by yourself in Tacoma?" And I was like, "Yeah." Like Lillian was there the whole time with me, like chatting away in my ear. She had so much to say about every, like, she'd be like, oh, yeah, I couldn't afford that jeweler. Like, yeah, I love that coffee <laughs> shop. So it's like, it's actually super fun to sort of spend time with, you know, the voices that talk to us in our heads. It's <laughs> like the, the literal putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Yes. <laughs> Walking the walk. Okay. A thousand animals? Four. Okay. What, what do you have? Um, we have two giant rescue dogs that are like, bigger than me, <laughs> and then two cats. 
Wow. And two kids. And two kids. Yeah. The second rescue dog was like, maybe not our best idea. (laughs) 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 Oh my gosh. How old are your kids? They're six and nine. I have a nine-year-old as well. It's it's fun. Nine-year-olds. Yes. I feel like it's soon going to go into like middle school craziness, but it's still little kid phase, which is great. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like my daughter is a little bit, I have an eight-year-old and a nine-year-old and the nine-year-old is like, very much like already 30, you know, like she, <laughs> yeah. she like picks out my clothes for me. The other day I went out and I like, she wasn't here. And I was like, you weren't here. And so I wore shoes that didn't look good. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> my son is definitely still in the sweet young boy phase. So oh, that's nice. nice. <laughs> I went back and read your piece about swell water bottles in Mark yeah. on Medium because I actually went to business school with Sarah. Oh, and great. Yeah. And I hadn't I mean, I obviously hadn't read that piece before. I found it absolutely fascinating. And I knew anecdotally, of course, that there are many copycats to the swell water bottles. But your deep dive into all of that was absolutely fascinating. Tell me more about that. Thank you. Yeah, it was a really interesting story. Sarah, who had been the CEO of Swell, was really outspoken about the problem in especially consumer products, mostly Chinese copycats. And she decided to be quite aggressive about going after these copycats. Because Swell retails for everything. $20, $25, like it matters for something like that. But it's also fairly easy to copy in in a not so good way. So she just talked about how difficult it actually is to go after these copycats. A lot of them are fly-by-night companies. You shut down one and it's in like some industrial park and then it pops up two weeks later as something else. Consumers, I think consumers are becoming more aware, but consumers are sort of unaware. Like if you look on Amazon or search dupes for Swell, you'll get this like just so many products. You don't know where they came from. You don't know how they are manufactured. You certainly don't know the labor practices involved. So there's there's so many downsides to it, but it's really, it's flooding the market. And the, I, I just wrote a story for Consumer Reports on e-bike buyers, which have been increasing at a, at a really alarming pace, especially here in New York City. And that's actually a similar problem. If you've got responsible manufacturers paying for testing, paying for safety, and then you've got fly-by-night companies using cheap, untested batteries and and sending them overseas. And again, consumers are mostly just looking for the cheapest product, and they're not that aware that they're taking a risk when they're buying these things. So where does this fascination or interest in like diving really deep into things? Like, where does this come from? And is it mostly consumer focused? No, I do a lot of criminal justice too. So I was at the New York Times for about a decade. Um, I did business to start there. I covered business and then I covered criminal justice. So I love these long, deep stories where you're really grappling with an issue that you don't understand at first. And it's one of those things where you start and you're like, I don't even know who to call. Like, I don't know a single, like e-bikes. I don't know. I didn't know a thing about And so you're just sitting there with like a list of possibilities of people you could call, reports you could look at, research you could do. And it's so fun when you finally start to get your head around it. And you finally, like, as you're interviewing people, I mean, you you may always sound like an idiot. That's fine. (laughs) But you're also like, you start to be like, oh, yeah, I know. I heard of that before. Right. What about this issue? And you start to really be able to shape what your story is going to be and what's happening here. And then, of course, you're always looking for the human part of it. Like the e-bike story really came together when I spoke to to this woman whose house had been, she was in an apartment building, but her apartment had been affected by an e-bike fire in the basement that had 
killed a child. And she then, she's been basically jumping from sofa to sofa with her small children since. She was like, I just can't believe that like a bike could do this to my life. So that kind of reporting and that, especially the the stuff that affects people who maybe don't have as much of a voice, who maybe don't have as much access to media. And tell me about the training you got and how you got really good at all this reporting and uh, when you knew this is what you wanted to do, like, is this what you wanted to do as a kid? And It was. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. The novel writing came later. I was, I was really scared of that. And I never, I was like, I don't think I can be a novelist, but journalism seemed a little more accessible. Like I did the high school paper, I did the college paper and just loved it. Like it's this, it's this, my dad always told me, find something you love to do and then find somebody who will pay you to do it. Yeah. <laughs> And this idea that you can just go out and talk to strangers and talk to smart people and see something that's amiss in the world and write about it and maybe leave the world a little bit better was is really appealing. So I started as a fact checker at a magazine that was a new economy magazine in San Francisco called E-Company Now! Exclamation point. It was very, very 2000. That is a job that's like, they still have them at like the Atlantic has fact checkers, New Yorker has fact checkers. There aren't as many of those jobs, which is a pity because it's actually fabulous for learning how a reporter sources each piece of information because you're going through with a pencil, double checking everything they do. That's this sort of, it's paid, obviously it's a job, but it's like an apprenticeship almost in, in that way. Um, and I went from there to a business magazine in New York and then to the Times. Amazing. And so then why the novel? Well, I was at the Times and my... I love reading. I always have a book, like a, I'm a physical book person. So I always have a book in my bag. I don't have any small purses. As a <laughs> and this idea for my first novel just kept gnawing at me. And finally I was like, okay, like, let me just put it down on screen and start working on it slowly and quietly without any pressure and see what happens. So I worked on that before work at the Times, and it took eight years, but I would get up at five and do an hour of work and then then go to the Times newsroom. And I think because the literary crowd, like in college or in New York, seem can be very, it seems quite exclusive and very like these people who've known since birth that they're going to be novelists. And they've been working in, in seminars or at fellowships or whatnot. It can feel a little bit like if you're not part of that, which I'm not, that there's not room for you at the table. So I, I, I was, even after my first novel came out, I was still quite hesitant to say that I was a novelist because I felt like sort of apart from that, from that scene. But I, I love the fictional world. It's, it's an interesting structural challenge. It's an interesting writing challenge in as much as you're sitting at a computer, it's similar to, to journalism in that way, but you're thinking about things and processing them and they change so much over the course of several years as you're writing, um, like some of the characters in Farewell Tour, Kaori, who's a young woman, a young, really talented fiddler who's on, who's on the land's Farewell Tour band. Like she was just a tiny character to start with. And then she just kept growing and having more to say. And like this whole other plot line involving her and her family's history came out of just Kaori pushing for more air and space in my head. So it's just, it's so interesting. Yeah. It's like this crazy application of the subconscious, you yes. know, that we all just accept. <laughs> We're like, okay, 
No, and you're like, right. Like you wake up from dreams and you're like, oh, that's how to solve that. (laughs) What is my mind doing? Yeah, crazy. But great. One person's imagination is like another person's whole afternoon, right? (laughs) It ends up working out really well. Exactly. (laughs) I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So then your second novel, how did you approach that? You didn't have to do it at five in the morning or did you just... No, I left the Times because I realized um, I couldn't do... By then I had two little kids and you don't have the 5 a.m. slot anymore. Yeah, I was wondering. I was like, wow, <laughs> were they asleep? And then she worked from five to six and then she made <laughs> breakfast. And... Um, so I I realized I couldn't do the, the Times job, which is incredibly demanding as it should be but just takes up like all hours of the day and write another novel so I left the times and I'm writing now journalism pieces for the times for the Atlantic for the New Yorker so I do that about half time then half time I'm working on the novel so this came from that kernel about my grandmother that I mentioned Mm -hmm. but it came from I, I grew up in Seattle Washington and as I read like classic Westerns, so Steinbeck or Owen Lister, I noticed two things. One was that they didn't represent the part of the West I'm from. They're all in these arid, dry landscapes. And I wanted to write about what it's like for somebody like Lillian, who doesn't quite fit in in the Northwest, but who recognizes the beauty of the land and how how lush and forgiving the land can be. So she's really grappling with this idea of like, wh- where do I fit in in this stunning place. And she she idealizes the history of the West really until, until the farewell tour. But it also came from when I read those books, they never let the woman out of the house. Mm. <laughs> and the men got to go out an adventure and they got to go fight or farm or whatever it was they were doing. And the women were like at home baking. <laughs> I was like, have you met Western women? Like they would like knock down that door and like (laughs) be galloping on a horse after you. So I wanted to write about a really fierce Western woman who's out in the world, out in this pretty difficult man's business. 
And then the, the country music part of it actually came last because I was trying to figure out what Lillian's job should be. And like for a minute, I had her working at Boeing, which was oh. I like I can't put together IKEA furniture and like, <laughs> I'm trying to explain airline airplane engineering. So I, I was happy to drop that. But I found out I, I always read the Times obituaries because I love, I love reading the Times obituaries. Oh, interesting. I love. I know. I'm always thinking like, if I ever teach a class, this is what I would do as an assignment. Just like read the obituaries and write a story. Yeah. Yes. Now everything you're like, oh, that's so, that's, that's cool. That's awesome. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I mentioned that there was this country music producer out of Washington state that had died. And I was like, that's I grew up in Washington. I love country music and I had no idea there was any connection between the two. So I started to look into it and found out that there was this like wonderful historical moment when country was really thriving in Washington. The honky-tonk scene was there. Loretta Lynn was out there. And Buck Owens, who's this great California country player, was up there. So I was like, that's it. If I can get Lil to Tacoma during the 50s, then like suddenly she's grappling with her stage presence and her music and how to how to survive while being an artist and all these things that I think are really interesting and very hard for her in some ways. Wow. Okay, so... You wrote that book. Now, what are you writing another book? Are you doing mostly reporting or are you hooked on fiction? I'm still trying to balance the two. So I'm working on some assignments for different magazines, uh, both almost all on criminal justice stuff. And then I'm starting to think about, I, I like wish I was one of those people who had the next novel going. <laughs> like yeah. the, the current one, but I don't know. I, I couldn't do it. So I'm starting to play with some different ideas about my next book. I just threw out like, I don't know, a hundred pages of a novel. <laughs> oh no, I'm so sorry. It's it's good actually. Like that that's one of the nice things about novels, right? Is like, it was sort of miserable writing and I was starting to hate all the people. And I was like, oh. I was like wait, 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 I don't, like <laughs> nobody's forcing me to, to like keep slogging through. I can just get rid of it and start fresh. So it actually felt a little bit freeing. That's true. I guess you can look at it that way. I have a novel coming out in March and I just finished like my last round of edits and my editor was like, we really don't need this whole scene. And I'm like, I know we don't need it, but I really like it. (laughs) I'm like, I think it's really funny and I want people to know. And she's like, why don't you summarize it in a sentence and then just cut (laughs) I was like, like, what if we have bonus reading? Anyway, of course we don't need it. And of course they took it out, but it was so emotionally hard to like part with any words. like especially when you're getting close to the end when you're you're like no 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 I've already cut so much like, yeah please exactly I know like it, it felt so perfectly like tied up but I guess that was a problem so anyway I like, that. I like the bonus reading idea yeah I'm like this is what it was like let's put it on line somewhere whatever exactly I, yeah sorry so maybe you'll do something with 100 pages <laughs> <laughs> that's true <laughs> maybe we should have like it would be neat to produce some sort of like wrapping paper where everybody's words, discarded words, go into like one big sort of vat. Do you know what I mean? And then like we yes. just print wrapping paper from discarded pages. That'd be kind of cool, actually. I don't know. But then Something. you want it like if you if you got into the store, then you'd be like, wait, <laughs> where's the yeah. of it? Maybe I don't know. Just it's like the land of lost words. Right? I know. I know. And like, are they out there suffering? Are they yeah. happy to be pleased? Yeah. Know? What about those characters that were <laughs> annoying you? Where'd they go? <laughs> Turns out they'll show up on your next trip. <laughs> exactly. 
Um, and I know you said you you read all the time and and all of that. And I also love to read like hard copies. I have to say much more. Yeah. What are some of your go to books, or what are you reading now, or authors you are obsessed with? I love Tana French. Mm-hmm. The I guess she's a thriller writer. Uh, you'd say, but she she's one of those people who I like track her her every release. She she is an Irish writer who who does mysteries set in Ireland. She's just a fabulous kind of scene setter. Uh, I just I guess I'm on an Irish kick. I just read the Louise Kennedy Trespasses, mm-hmm. which I thought was really fabulous. And I read it at this, I was at the same time, more or less, I was reading E.V. Ganeshanathan's Brotherless Night. And both of those are are set in 1970s, 1980s cities kind of overrun by domestic terrorism. So they actually, and they, they both feature female characters t- trying to navigate their way through. And Subi Ganeshanathan's is set in Sri Lanka. But they they were actually a perfect pairing because there was so much, they're very different books, but there were so many similar themes running through them. So I loved reading both of those together. And then I somehow have not read Circe by Madeline Miller. So I'm treating myself to that this weekend, which I'm very excited about. Awesome. I saw her speak like years ago, like right when her book came out. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Greeks, like mythology, whatever. (laughs) All right. And then it like exploded. And I was like, it's like, oh, anyway, should have paid more attention. Yes, I had read Song of Achilles when it came out and was just Song of Achilles, right? Not Shield of Achilles. Yeah. And yeah. just blown away by it. So I don't know how I've not gotten around to this, but I'm very excited to read it. You seem like just so smart, like you're so articulate and bright and everything. And I know you have to interview for investigative journalism, like just so many types of people, right? Like from all different walks of life and education levels and everything. And how do you feel about like talking to all different types or using your brain to, you know, connect across everything. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's actually one of the best parts of it for me is you get to talk to people and see places that you just wouldn't see in your, in, if you were a banker or a, I don't know, lawyer, lawyers might, but so I've walked with people as they've come out of prison after 29 years. And it's, it's just unbelievable to be able to be there to like, to feel like you have their trust enough that they're letting you in at this moment. And I usually just try to be quiet and let them talk. And mm-hmm. I think, if, you know, you see reporters in movies, they're always like talking over whoever they're interviewing and being like, no, 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 I know the truth is this. And I think there's, I think the, a better tactic is just to sort of be quiet, let the person open up, push them, obviously. And, and you would have different approaches with, say, a senior statesman versus somebody who's leaving prison. But mostly I'm, I'm just trying to understand their story and, and their emotions and kind of bring, if, if they're talking about something that happened in the past, really bring them back to it and try to understand what they were going through then, what they were seeing, what they were hearing, what they were feeling, so I can try to recreate that scene as I write about it. Amazing. Do your kids like to read? They love it. Yeah. They do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm reading Cersei in part because my kids are on a Greek mythology kick. And so they know everything about every like Greek god, major, minor in between. And I feel like I need to catch up because they keep being like, who is the third fury? And I'm like, (laughs) 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 I know. I love when my like sixth grade information 
doesn't isn't at the ready and my kids right? know like, everything. <laughs> yeah. It's it's hum, it's humbling, I have to say. Humbling. Um, and I forgot to ask, are both your books going to be movies or what is the what is the film book to film status on on these both? The first one was option and there's like a script floating around. Um we'll see. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll see. Um, the second one is out for film right now. So we're we're getting interest and talking to people and seeing where it goes. Really exciting. Well, amazing. I mean, I'm so impressed with your whole career and pivot to fiction and it's really awesome. So thank you. Great to talk to you. You too. <laughs> All right. I'll take care. Maybe I'll see you. Bye. See you in New York. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.